Hello, and welcome to Sex, Love, and Addiction. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Rob Weiss. I am a licensed therapist, sexologist, and author of numerous books on relationships, sex, and addiction, including Pro-Dependence, Moving Beyond Codependency, Sex Addiction 101, and Out of the Doghouse. Our website, sexandrelationshiphealing.com, offers information, resources, live, no-cost, interactive support, that means free, and most of all, hope to those struggling with or affected by profound cheating, as well as sex or love addiction and related intimacy problems. This podcast is primarily a forum for discussing sex, infidelity, love, and addiction in frank and informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you advice, opinions, and feedback on this very challenging subject from experts around the world. All are welcome here. Now let's get started. I am so excited today, um, really moved to have the opportunity to talk to a, a colleague and someone who I respect tremendously, who's been willing to put her word, her name and her experience out in the world. Uh, I think primarily to let other people know that it's okay to be broken and that you can get fixed. And that person's name is Erica Garza. Welcome, Erica. Thank you for having me, Rob. Erica Garza. You are welcome. I'm going to get that little welcome part in. Erica is the author of the memoir, Getting Off, One Woman's Journey Through Sex and Porn Addiction, which just came out uh, on Simon & Schuster. Her essays have appeared in Glamour and Health and Salon and Good Housekeeping and the Los Angeles Review. She holds an MFA in nonfiction writing from Columbia University and lives in Los Angeles with her husband and what I suspect is a really, really sweet little girl daughter. So um, welcome, Erica. Thanks for joining us. Um, Thank you. You must be tired of talking about your sex life in front of millions of people. I'm just thinking. <laughs> I am a little tired, but I'm also really grateful. Great. Yeah. Well, gratitude is a, is a good thing for anyone who is in a healing place to hold on to. And for people who have, you know, problem histories around sex, especially if you're a woman, um, gratitude is a good place to be because while the world may look at you and say and judge you, you're just so grateful that you get how you get to have the life you have and that it's working. So I, I understand your gratitude. Um, I guess I want to know a little bit about what it was like. What was your life like that led you to have to question your life and and review it around sex and relationships and all that? You know, the I would say loneliness was a big theme um, in my relationships, in my life from a very early age. Um, you know, I started to masturbate compulsively very early on. I was around 12. And my early discoveries of that, you know, I was, I, nobody ever talked about sex or masturbation. I grew up in a Latino Catholic upbringing and sex was just off the table. So when I started masturbating, um, I had no idea what I was doing and that what I was doing was very normal. So early on, I had this sense of great shame and guilt around sexuality. And, you know, but I wanted to do it all the time because it, it felt good, obviously. And I think in retrospect, all of that is very normal. Um, those early discoveries and the desire to do it more and more. But what shifted it for me was that I was diagnosed with scoliosis when I was 12, around the same time that I discovered sexuality. And that's when I started to feel really insecure and self-conscious. And I found that if I masturbated more and if I watched more porn, then I could get a break from those big, scary feelings. And then I didn't have to feel those feelings and I didn't have to deal with them. And I learned how to use sex as a crutch going forward and kind of spiraled out of control from there. You know, I'm thinking, Erica, like 12 
13, 11, those are tough years, period. Uh, they're tough years for the healthiest kid in the healthiest situation. But when you don't understand your sexuality, when you don't understand why you're even experiencing this and you're lonely and feeling, as every adolescent does, ugly and unwanted and like you don't fit in, and then you really don't fit in because there's something wrong with you uh, physically, I can imagine how turning to some comfort, to something that you could control that would make you feel better, would make sense. I mean, that, that makes sense to me. Absolutely. And I think that if I had known that what I was discovering was very normal and that sex was actually okay and a good thing, then maybe that I wouldn't have felt the shame that was attached to it. And the shame component is really, I feel like what catapulted my uh, sexuality into an addiction later on, because I would continue to seek out a combination of pleasure and shame in the type of porn I watched, in the type of relationships I sought. So it was always there with the pleasure. And I often wonder if I had just felt that my, I was worthy of that feeling of pleasure, would it have changed into something else, something positive, maybe? Well, you bring up something really important, which which almost, I mean, I, I've been in the field a long time, and something I, uh, that I've written about, that Patrick Carnes has written about, um, is this uh, experience of growing up in a family where sexuality is never discussed, never dealt with, and really not understood, but we're all sexual beings. And so we're surrounded by affection and sexuality, our own and others, but we don't understand it, it doesn't make sense to us, it's not explained to us. And so that's part of the shame, as you said, it's like, well... I, I'm probably doing something bad if no one's talking about it and it feels really good and I have this feeling I'm not supposed to tell anyone, uh, then yeah, it's going to bring up shame. And, and, and I don't know if you ever asked yourself this. I have to say I did as a sex addict. There was a point I remember thinking to myself, I don't know if I'm more invested in making myself feel bad and then having sex to feel better or if I am having the sex and then I feel bad. Like I just felt so awful about myself. It became difficult to separate out whether I was seeking the shame and the depression or actually the sex that led to the shame and depression. Does that make any sense? Exactly. And that's why I say that that shame aspect really affected the type of porn I watched because I, I would watch porn that turned me off almost like I needed to be turned off in order to be turned on. And in when I would seek partners, sexual partners, I needed them to, I needed to feel like I was being used by them or like I was using them. Like they really didn't like me or they thought I was ugly. Like I had to play these really negative things in my head in order to feel pleasure. It was it was just not a very nice combination <laughs> looking back. Well, well, what you're talking about is so typical for, for so many of us who uh, struggle to get our heads above water. I mean, you're doing something to make yourself feel better and then it makes you feel worse. And that, of course, as you said, is really what defines addiction. When we start turning to something over and over again, not for that primary pleasure, like masturbation might be fun or sex might be fun, but this is where I go to feel better. This is where I go to escape. This is where I go to disappear. And I can create, and it's a fantasy world. You know, what you said about creating the scenarios makes a lot of sense for many of the people uh, who are listening, I think, because there's a combination of living in fantasy and also having control over it. I don't know about you, but I think one of the issues for us, many of us, is in real relationships, we don't have control. You know, Someone may like right. us, they may not like us, it may work, it may not work. But when we're in those sexual roles, even though someone else would look at us and say, what the heck are you doing in that situation? You're so vulnerable. To us, it feels powerful, right? Exactly. And whenever I would feel a relationship 
becoming something that I valued or that I might care about this person or they care about me, then I would feel, as you said, completely out of control because I don't know what's going to happen if I let my heart into this. If I love somebody, then I'll, I won't have any kind of control over that relationship. Whereas if I just relied on somebody for sex, if it, this casual, no strings attached thing, then I knew how that would play out. It would be a temporary thing. Nobody really invests in it. And then we move on and go into something else. But the idea of being really intimate with another person or vulnerable, that was far too scary. You know, Eric, it's, it's, uh, you, were, you, do, you do such a good job of describing from your own experience things that I would talk about as a therapist, you know, like the control issue or the, the, what I would call intimacy avoidance, which is I really, which, you know, we all long for closeness, but for some, you know, if you carry a feeling inside of you that you're not worthy of it or you don't deserve it, maybe someone else will find out who you think you are and then they're going to leave. There's a lot of fear of abandonment in that. But I, the, the singular thing you said I think is really meaningful is something that I know healthy women would not understand uh, and healthy men, which, well, women in particular, which is, um, and it's kind of me too-ish to talk about this. So maybe I'll jump on this for a second. Many women that I work with will say that they feel really offended when a man starts staring at her chest rather than her face. Some women I know are even powerful enough to say, uh, my face is up here. Those are my boobs, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But um, generally they feel like they want to be treated as a person and not be objectified, that that's extremely important to most healthy women, especially in business and out in the world. And yet sex addicts, female sex addicts, you you know, people have these issues. When someone sexualizes us as an object, when I know that person is looking at me sexually, I don't feel insulted. I feel powerful. I feel like I've got some control over them. And that's kind of counterintuitive, but I know you understand that. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, I mean, you're right in thinking that I would feel like, okay, now I've got this person under my spell. Now we're going to engage in something that is going to take me away from all of the other kind of issues I was talking about that were far too scary, the love and the intimacy. We can just be um, props in each other's lives and have this experience and then move on from it. Um, absolutely. I, I mean, I loved that feeling. But then I would feel this sense of deep emptiness and self-hatred if I didn't get that kind of attention from another person. Then that would lead me to feel very empty and, and in need of that kind of attention if I wasn't getting it. So I came to rely on it too heavily for a long time. So casual sex is kind of like, casual sex kind of comes, becomes like eating potato chips when you're hungry. You know, it, it, it for the moment feels the longing, the loneliness, the emptiness and covers up some of that shame, but ultimately it just leaves you feeling emptier than before. It's, it's not nutritious. It doesn't feed you. Yeah. And I would convince myself that, okay, if I'm going to go out with this person and we're going to have sex, then that's connection. You know, that's, uh, that's intimacy. That's mm. something, you know, like it was kind of like a halfway effort. That's what it felt like. Um, but I wasn't willing to go the full way because I, I could, didn't know where that was going to lead. And, you know, I, I wanted to be able to have that control we talked about. Um, but it just led me to feel very lonely and disconnected from other people and isolated for a long time. And I didn't know how to nurture relationships that were outside of that mold. It's like a, even friendship. I didn't know how to be casual and interact with another person without feeling this deep sense of, um, just dread that they were going to find mm. out something terrible about me and not want to speak to me anymore. Sex was just easier. And this is such a um, this is such a painful part of the cycle of sex addiction is that the more we act out to try to feel okay and close to someone, the emptier we feel and the further away we get from actually being close to someone. Because if we invited someone in that we really thought cared about us, we don't think we're worthy because of all that sexual behavior. So it's right. really a, a box. It's very hard to get out of. Um, how did you? 
find your way out? Because clearly you have. So when I was in my 20s, late 20s, I already had a feeling that I had an issue with sex. I just didn't know what to do about it. And I had heard about Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous meetings, but I had all these ideas of what that might be, that they were going to tell me to stop having sex or stop masturbating, that there were only going to be men at the meetings. You know, all these ideas that a lot of women actually have about the meetings without actually going. So there's lots of ideas before actually trying it. And so I didn't try that right away. I um, instead read the book Eat, Pray, Love. I know it sounds really cheesy, but I took a trip to Bali and I wanted to have that kind of um, experience on my on my own as a woman, this solo trip like that, where I was just going to focus on myself. And my 30th birthday was coming up and I thought, Mm. okay, I want that decade to be better than the last, which I looked at and thought, okay, that's really lonely. I've been sabotaging all the relationships that mattered. Let's do things differently. So I took this trip to Bali and I just really started to prioritize self-care. I started to do a lot of yoga and meditate and slow down and pay attention to the mess that was happening in my head and the kinds of things I was telling myself and the things I believed about myself and reflect on everything that had brought me to that moment. And I was in that very clear headed space when I met the person who became my husband. And he was also in recovery, but for drug addiction. And we were just kind of on the same path of wanting to live better lives. And we were able to hold each other in that path. And he was the first person that I revealed that I was a sex addict to. And to my surprise, he didn't run away and, you know, get and judge me. He was very supportive and listened to me. And it felt so good to me and so relieving and so different to be able to be raw and vulnerable with another human being and to be listened to and accepted in that. And I thought, okay, this is something I need to be talking about and working on. And that's when things really started to shift for me. I started going to 12 step meetings. I started to do talk therapy. I started to write about my journey and just step outside of my addiction for once and start to make small steps into a positive direction. Hey there, I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. I, I have to say I relate to you, and I, I didn't expect to. I'm a male sex addict, and I'm a therapist, and you're a female sex addict and a writer, and we're 30 years apart, and yet I completely relate to that feeling of I don't have the life that I want to have, and I don't know how to make it better, but I don't want to keep doing what I'm doing. And also, Eric, I will say that you and I have something in common, which is a little rare for sex addicts, is that most people go to treatment or get started meetings or start to get help when things get so bad that you know they've lost a spouse they've lost a marriage they've lost a job with porn they've gotten arrested they got a disease all of the different they they tried to hurt themselves you know the different kinds of consequences we have that's often what drives people to treatment and the greatest one being the fear of a loss of a relationship but it seems to me and and I remember this myself that I decided and it sounds like you did that I I want to have love in my life. I want to have what everybody else has. I really, and it takes work and I'm going to make sure I get there. And that's what got me into recovery. And it sounds like what got you into recovery too is not the fear of the painful consequences you were in and wanting them to go away. You know, kind of like I got caught and now I want uh, to, you know, get better. But that you really thought out how your life was going and you decided it's not going the way I want it to go. Yeah, I mean, it was just this this desire to, 
do better for myself, to, to, for myself, to live better and that I deserved that. It was a gradual realization. A lot of times people ask mm. me, what was the bottom? You know, what was the lowest point? And it's hard to pinpoint because for me, it just felt like a gradual realization of I'm unhappy. I'm feeling stuck. I don't want to live this way anymore. I need to do better for myself and making those small changes. When you talk about bottom, uh, and I think about, you know, not everyone knows what that means. It's it's kind of like, what is the worst moment in your addiction, in this case, in your sexual behavior history that led you to say enough? And one of the things about a bottom is that we start out at one place, a lot of masturbation, but there's escalation, which, and, and maybe you could speak about that just briefly. Like it didn't just stop, as you said, with looking at images or online, then it translated into your real life and your sexual experiences with people. So th there was progression. And I can imagine at 30, when you were thinking, maybe I better take a look at this, you were seeing kinds of progression you weren't happy with. Yeah. And, you know, I think that porn did play, I, I hate to blame porn completely because I think that it's really complex and uh, lots of people can watch porn without becoming <laughs> addicts. But for me, you know, I felt like the immediacy and the accessibility of porn really coincided with my discoveries of sex. And so early on, it just catapulted into something else because it started off mildly just watching softcore porn and masturbating. And then I started to have, you know, the, the internet came about. So I started having chat room encounters and then downloading pictures became available and then streaming porn. And then it was available on mobile device. So anytime that I felt like maybe I would have gotten over it or lost interest, I had this new and enticing, engaging material to just keep me hooked on it. And I kept turning to it and relying on it um, in order to, to escape. And then I started to have sex with real people and had all sorts of ideas about how sex should look and how I should behave in the bedroom. And I got hooked on that, on the mm. idea of performing for another person. And that felt good. And then I put myself in situations where it felt dangerous and a bit destructive, but, and it made me feel ashamed, but because the shame was so tied up in the pleasure, I needed to get that too. So it just kept progressing and escalating, as you say, as time went on and it became harder to escape. And I didn't know how to. Did you have a double life, Eric? I mean, I know a lot of people and I uh, talk about how, you know, they worked and they had friends and they went to the gym and they did whatever they did. Some people had family and kids, but then there was this other life that no one knew about. Was your uh, was your sexual life a secret to other people? It wasn't something that I talked about openly, not so much. I mean, sometimes I thought it was really, it would make me a cool girl if I talked about the fact that I watched porn, you know, or I liked a lot of sex, but I never felt vulnerable enough to tell people the type of porn I watched or how much porn I was watching or the feelings I was trying to escape. So it was like in my relationships, a halfway effort. Let me just show you a little bit of my sexuality, but I can't tell you too much because then you're going to run away and judge me. And that's more control, which is I'll let you see the parts of me that I think you'll accept and I'll keep out the parts that I'm worried that you won't. And the challenge with that is that, you know, it's funny, Eric, I, you know, many, many times when someone would come in my office as a sex addict and I would say, you know, who, who are your friends? Like, do you have deep friends? And they, oh, yes, I have lots and lots of friends. And I would say with them, well, how many know really the full background of your sexual behavior? And they'd say no one. And I would say, well, then you don't have any friends. And they would look at me like, well, wait, wait, I went to college with this friend and the person I went to high school. It's like, yes, but they don't <laughs> know you. And one of the challenges of sex addiction is that it's so easy to hide in some level. And it, as you said, it's so profoundly affects our ability to believe we are worth loving. And then the people around us, even the closest ones to us, don't fully know everything. So it's kind of like we carry around this way of telling the world, you know, whatever you throw at me that's kind or sweet or warm or loving or affectionate, I will always have this little part of me that says, well, yeah, but if you knew what I was doing, 
you wouldn't feel that way about me. That's like holding on to that shame. And that's what's been the most healing part of being able to tell somebody when I told my husband and going to those meetings where you tell people what you've been up to and writing about this as I have for the past few years, that's been a huge part of my healing process because I have allowed myself to reveal these things, to be as exposed and honest about these dark parts of my past as possible. And what I have found in place of all the rejection I was anticipating was this great sense of connection with other people who have felt just as I've felt, whether they consider themselves to be sex addicts or not, a lot of people can relate to that feeling of unworthiness and loneliness and fear of rejection and fear of intimacy. So I found that if we talk about these things, we're more likely to to find that connection with other people. And it's really wonderful. So you're, you are on the healing path and that is a wonderful thing. And you have the life that you are wanting to have and you've created it. And you have made, by the way, uh, lemonade out of lemons. <laughs> uh, when you take your story and you turn it around and you say, no, I'm not going to be ashamed of that. I'm going to celebrate it as something that might help other people. And I'm not going to be ashamed of that. I'm going to help use it as a guide uh, for others to heal. I mean, that, that is a, that's a really healthy thing. Because you have nothing to hide now. And you it doesn't matter what people think or don't think. Everyone knows everything about you. Yeah. <laughs> maybe more than you'd like. <laughs> and you seem to have more. And, and I, I, you know, we, Eric and I uh, were on the Today Show with Megan Kelly, uh, I guess, about a month and a half ago. And um, what I recall about that experience was how gentle Megan Kelly was with you, how gentle the producers were with you. And, you know, here you are a bit of a harlot, as I might say, you know, one of the sluts among us, meaning there's nothing delicate about your history, <laughs> um, nothing to be, you know, and, and I'm talking to you as a sex addict now, but yet um, they treated you with so much respect and so much dignity and so much, um, what's the word for it? Almost this feeling of, I won't say reverence, but they wanted you to know that they did not judge you, that they did not uh, want the world to see you as a woman who should be judged, but rather a woman who deserves appreciation and understanding. Yeah. And that is so counterintuitive to what I would imagine you think you would have gotten. Exactly. And most people have been that kind, you know, and I've been surprised time and time again, because I was really hardening myself and preparing for the backlash mm. and all the things that people might say about me might say about my family. And I, I had that fear, I'm human. But what I have found is that people are much more accepting and much more gentle, just like Megan Kelly and those producers, um, because because they know what pain feels like. And, and they're very happy that somebody is is willing to just be honest and be vulnerable uh, because you know we live in these these closed off boxes so much of our lives and we don't feel like we can talk about these things well, I don't know. I grew up a little earlier than you, but I grew up in a very looking good time when, you know, no one had any problems and no one talked about religion and every family was, there was no divorce because no one ever talked about it. And that's the world I grew up in. And by the way, I want to say that world still exists. It's called Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> no, truly, like if you go online, you know, your friends have the perfect lives, everything's going right. You know, their kids are getting in the prom that this, I mean, everything looks great. And then they call you and say, oh my God, my life's a mess. So um, we still have looking good worlds. They all, you know, we all have our scrapbooks up on Facebook. Um, I have a feeling yours might be a little different than most. <laughs> um, but, you know, one of the things I really like, uh, immediately liked about you, Eric, and I think we're, we'll maybe end up being friends at some point, is be, that you are remarkably unashamed of your, not only your history, but who you are, of being a mother, uh, having a child who might read this book one day. And, you know, I, I, that's been everyone's like, oh my God, what if your daughter reads this? And you're like, uh, I guess they'll learn something about their her mother. You know, it's like what what you know. 
and you, if and this is such a lesson I think for recovery is that if you are not living in shame, if you carry your head held high and your shoulders, you know it doesn't matter how others might reflect on your experience. You know what you've been through. You're walking in your own shoes. You know nobody is going to shame me more than I've already shamed myself. It's like I've already experienced the worst of the worst of what that feels like. So. You know, they can certainly try, but that's their problem now. You know, I feel beyond that, like I've gotten past that point and it's quite empowering. <laughs> can you say more about that giggle? <laughs> What's empowering? Well, it's just that, you know, when people ask me, are you worried what your daughter is going to think? It kind of just makes my point. You know, that's the whole point is people asking that kind of question are expecting me to react with shame and embarrassment, but I've already gotten past that point. And I think it says more about them and their fears around sexuality and being that real with their children than it says about me and my journey. So I think it's a takeaway for them. <laughs> and who you are to your daughter is not that book. I mean, you are uh, you know, a nurturer, a caregiver, a, a friend, a, a playmate, a, a you know, a, a bedtime story reader. You know, you, you, that will be one teeny piece about you in a much larger context of who you are to your daughter. And 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 when people are looking at the book, they're saying the book, the daughter. They're not seeing that you have a huge relationship and love your daughter. You're this, this all of that, and this is really just like flotsa. It's just floating in the air. It doesn't really mean anything. It's just a little piece. Let me say this, Eric, and I, I want to ask you how you feel about this. Did you, th well, I, I know how I felt about it. Did you feel, did you recognize, did you think of the fact that you would become a role model for women? I hoped, I hoped that would happen. Yes. I mean, when I started writing the book, it was more of a personal journey, me trying to understand myself. I'd always turn to writing as a source of comfort. But when I started to publish those things publicly and hear from other women, and they were so relieved that somebody was talking about this because they had felt this way, but they'd felt alone for a really long time. And I knew what that felt like. I thought, okay, I can do something important now. I can make a contribution and help other people feel less alone. And that might make a big difference in somebody's life. And I would love to be a reference point for people and a resource for people who feel that alone. And I am working as hard as I can to let everyone know about Erica's book, Getting Off, because any woman in particular who, you know, it's one thing for a guy to have a sex addiction problem. We can always, if we want to duck into our cover, say, well, I'm just a stud, I'm a player, you know, I'm a horny guy, like I'm a good looking guy, I like to fool around a lot. There are a lot of ways where a man can duck under being a man, even if the sex he's having is not so attractive. But a woman is always going to be a slut. A woman is always going to be a whore. There, there are no nice names in our culture for women who have a lot of sex. And therefore, it makes it so much harder. And in fact, Eric, I think the first time I met you, I said, I've been waiting for you for 15 years or something like that. And that's because <laughs> yeah. you know, I've opened women's programs. I've run women's treatment centers for these issues, intimacy and sex. But I've never really been able to have, uh, to know a woman who, uh, well, I've maybe one or two, but very rare is it uh, a, a woman willing, especially if she's not a therapist, you know, and trying to sell a book about therapy or something. I've never had a woman who could come forward and say, yeah, I got these issues. And so what, you know, and that is the gift that you bring, I think, more than anything. It's not just your story. It's the, I'm not a bad person because of this, folks, and you can think whatever you want. And I imagine that did not happen overnight. That process of moving from, I'm unworthy of love, and I hope nobody learns too much about me, to I'm open to the world, and I could be a role model, and all of my challenges can be gifts if I turn them around. Like, how long did that take? 
it's a process, you know, and it's still a process. I'm a human being. I get hurt if somebody says something bad or, you know, the, the thought crosses my mind sometimes of, am I doing the right thing here? Am I revealing too much? Because it's scary to be exposed, but it's also really important to do the things that scare us. And I think that's the only way we can grow. So it's an ongoing process, but it's getting better every day. And I do feel like I'm doing something important and helpful, especially when I hear from other women. Well, there are a lot of women who struggle and um, more than I ever knew, Erica, you know, I've been doing some online work and webinars um, in this area. And it's been fascinating to me because all of my life, all of my professional life, I've mostly worked with men, except uh, except for the centers I started opening for women about eight or 10 years ago. And um, but the reason I've mostly worked with men is because men are who come in with this issue. You know, men are the ones who come in and say, my wife found out, my boss found out. I've always had women, but they often came in sideways. They'd come into treatment through eating issues or gambling issues or s drugs and alcohol. And if we talked about their sexuality, that we learned that there was a problem and we would understand it. But most women don't come in the front door. And uh, one of the things I've noticed working online is that probably 70% of the people that chat with me online are women. And they're talking to me about sex addiction, about porn addiction, about avoiding sex, about you know, all of the things we're talking about. And I'm thinking, where, why haven't I seen these women in the 12-step rooms? Why haven't I seen these women in uh, support groups and, uh, you know, out going to therapy? And, and I think it has to do with the shame. Absolutely. Why do you think women have been in, in the shadows around this issue so much more than men? Uh, well, it's as you as you said before. We know the kind of language that we reserve for women who uh, engage in a lot of sexual behavior. They're sluts. They're whores, and no woman wants to be called that. It hurts. And if they aren't called sluts and whores, then it's assumed that she's a victim, and something must have happened in her childhood. And that's the that's the common narrative. And when you don't fit the narrative, when you feel like you don't belong there, that some then something must be wrong with you alone. And that's a really hard pill to swallow. Um, to feel all alone in that because it adds another layer of, of loneliness and, and shame. And um, I just think that, you know, it's because more people haven't talked about it. And hopefully that's going to change, not just with my story, but I think we're in a cultural shift at the moment where a lot of women are speaking about things that they've previously kept quiet about for a really long time. And, you know, as more stories like these come out, I think that more women will feel safe speaking up and then we'll get a more accurate picture of what sex addiction looks like and feels like for everybody. Well, I believe we're going to have a diagnosis next year, so that will help a lot. There's going to be a diagnosis in Europe and Asia later this year, and next year I believe we'll have one in our American Diagnostic Manual, and that will help a lot because when something is diagnosed and it is treatable, which these issues are, but uh, um, more formally, it, it makes it a little bit easier for everybody to feel like, oh, right, that's not about who they are. They actually have an issue. Right. I'm fascinated, Erica, when you talk about how you onboarded into porn and then out into the larger sexual world, because that to me is very much the story of sex on the internet. You kind of grew up with it and it brought you out into this larger world, starting with porn and then leading to real live activities. But I'm also thinking that in my experience of working with women online, so many more of them are showing up online in meetings and in support groups than men, that women are onboarding to healing online. And that is happening in ways that that's different than men, because men, I believe, are more comfortable as much as they might not want to walking in somewhere and saying, I have a sex problem. And and a man may be able to tolerate going into a church basement where he doesn't know anyone and sitting down in a room and talking about his sex life. But there are an awful lot of women who I don't think would feel comfortable in that environment. And, you know, we kind of put, we put 
demands on people to recover. They have to show up here. They have to go there. They have to meet in this place. And so many women do not want to be seen in a public place talking about their sex life, especially with, with a, even just a few men sitting around and, and or anybody. And mm-hmm. so it's fascinating to me that, that your disease, your disorder kind of onboarded and escalated related to the internet. And yet I have a feeling that the healing and the discussion that we're having and that we're seeing broaden and become larger is also driven by that same access. It's true. The internet can be a wonderful place to connect with other people and to find help if you don't feel comfortable enough um, finding that in in your community um, face-to-face. Although there are 12-step meetings that are for women, and I think that's very useful for women who don't want to be around other men and talk about these issues. Those are available. And the prevalence of women's circles and women's support groups, that's coming up as well. Um, But the internet, it has been a great redemption for me. Uh, You know, I was able to write about my sex addiction and and publish that publicly. It was such a huge step for me to be able to reveal that about myself and the relief that came from a confession like that on a public scale. I mean, it was phenomenal for me and it really helped me grow and heal and change. And I think that that's available for a lot of women. And if you can't go to those support meetings face-to-face, then yes, they are available online. And I think that's very useful. And you're talking about Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous and Sex Addicts Anonymous and those kinds of environments. And yes, they do have live meetings that are women only, and they have online meetings that are women only. So there's many places to find that healing. I want to know if there's anything you read that really helped guide your journey that, you know, uh, that was either women in recovery or I hear that Eat, Pray, Love was definitely a gift to you. I got that. Um, But maybe deeper down when you got underneath some of the issues, is there anything that you would recommend to a woman that might be helpful specifically for a woman? Or do you think the general literature that, you know, Sex Addiction 101 or whatever it is applies to everybody? I think it applies to everybody. I mean, one book that was really helpful for me at the beginning was The Power is Within You by Louise Hay. I thought that was really useful. It gave a lot of the nice tools. Um, and there are also some other memoirs written about this sort of thing. Loose Girl by Carrie Cohen uh, about her early sex addiction. She doesn't call it sex addiction. She calls it promiscuity, but it's pretty much the same sort of stuff she's talking about in that book. I thought that was really useful. And um, and my book, so please read it. <laughs> I just want to say, Erica Garza, I am proud of you. Like you represent to me what I'm hopeful women will start doing in droves, which is not only talking about the pain that men have caused them, but also talking about the pain that they cause themselves. And there's no shame in this. There's no hiding in this. There's no, you know what there is in this? And and you're, maybe this is my, the thrill that I get in talking to you is I feel redemption. I feel like, you know, one of the issues that I have with what I'm seeing in me too is there's a lot of guys standing on TV with people pointing at them and saying, those guys have done terrible things. And uh, and by the way, all the men in the country are also pointing at those guys and saying, oh, those guys did terrible things. But men aren't talking about how they can do terrible things and how they need to look at themselves and how men can change and grow and maybe even be redeemed from acting out sexually and creating these kinds of problems. And you, Erica Garza, are a voice for redemption for women, that you can be as low as you think you can go and as much shame and really loss and hopelessness about what future you might have. And within a few years with some hard work and some good female support and hope that you can turn the life, your life into the life you want to have. And for that, I'm, I'm forever grateful to you folks. This is Erica Garza, 
author of Getting Off. Um, she's a journalist, an author, a mom, a really lovely person, and someone who is working to change um, sex addiction in women. Erica, let me ask you just real quick, if people want to reach you or find out, I know they can get Getting Off, but is, uh, do you have a website? Is there some place that they can get your information about you? Sure. You can go to ericagarza.com. And I'd love to hear from people. I try to respond to every person who writes to me, even if it takes me a little while. Um, I love to hear from other people. So yes, please contact me. You go, girl. (laughs) I will talk to you soon, Erica Garza. Thank you for your time. And folks, we look forward to doing this again really, really soon. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.